this is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Narkarni. The marine world supports diverse life forms, some of which produce complex chemical compounds that can defend them against being eaten or disturbed by other animals, including humans. A graduate student in Australia recently published a paper about one species of sea anemone that creates up to 84 different toxins that are secreted from different body parts and which affect different physiological processes. Equally intriguing is that some of these toxins may have therapeutic values for people. Scientists are interested in pain-causing venoms because if they can isolate the toxin and find the nerve cell receptor it activates, they can potentially develop a blocker to prevent pain and treat conditions like chronic backache with the help of a toxic marine animal. Our guest today, Lauren Ashwood, is the lead author of the study. She is a molecular biologist who carries out research at the Queensland University of Technology, or the QUT. Lauren, welcome to our program. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Great. Great to talk to you. Um, your study of sea anemones and how their toxins work is just fascinating to me, and, and we'll get to that very soon. But first, I, I would like to learn just a little bit about you. Um, the paper, this paper that you, you co-wrote, is a report of your doctoral dissertation work at the Queensland University of Technology, or the QUT. Um, would you could describe your research setting are you part of a big lab that's studying many facets of this topic, or are you kind of a lone investigator on this, or or somewhere in between? Yeah. Um, so I've been at QT since my undergraduate degree. So it's going on seven years now. I've just submitted my PhD. I officially got my doctor title, so that's really exciting. Well, congratulations, Lauren. That is huge. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's been a long work. Um, no, we're quite a small lab. There's only a few of us, and in particular, only a few of us who are actually studying sea anemones. So Associate Professor Peter Prentice is my supervisor. There's only been a couple of us studying sea anemones. One of the others, we're looking at them for healing and regeneration. These um, animals have amazing capacity to heal, so we're looking at them for some answers for that as well. How did you get interested in this topic? Was it was it sort of through the natural history of sea anemones or was it particular questions about venoms or a desire to contribute to the world of medicine or, or what sort of drew you into this particular topic, I wonder? Growing up in Australia, we have a lot of exposure to nature, good and bad, all the deadly animals that you know can do quite a lot of harm. And I found it fascinating that there were scientists who were looking to nature for answers for some of the questions. So for drug discovery, for antibiotics, for all these amazing things that we, you know, as a society need to function. One of my lecturers in undergrad, Dr. Anna Pavasovic, is actually my supervisor's husband. And she was introducing me to some of her research, looking at these sea anemones and looking at these peptides and seeing whether they have the potential to be designed into drugs. And that's kind of where I got led into this program, I guess. From the author list on your paper, I see that your research team comes from five different universities in three different countries. And I'm, I'm really curious about how, how your team got assembled. How did this, these collaborations come about? A lot of the time it was through conferences. So uh, Peter, my supervisor, had been introduced to Glenn over at UQ and to Ray down in Melbourne through conferences. The venom drug discovery world in Australia is quite small, so it makes sense to team up um, when we're doing some of these papers because we all have our specialty fields. We all have the particular tests that we do, and you can't really get a whole picture unless you're working together. 
Well, I think that's really, a, you know, a trend, a growing trend now, I think, in science is this need for collaboration as we get more and more specialized, as these tools that we use, become, you know, take more and more training and so forth. I think it is in collaboration, um, in partnerships that we can solve some of these very, very complex scientific and societal problems. So that, that's very interesting. Let's talk about your organism, which is a sea anemone, and its its scientific name is Telmetactus stephensoni. Um, it's in the animal group of, of nadarians that are corals and jellyfish and sea anemones. I'm curious about what this animal looks like and where does it live in nature? What's its natural habitat like? Yeah, so uh, sea anemones are cousins to corals. Um, I guess everyone would know them as being the house of clownfish. So I don't know if there's anyone out there who's seen Fighting Nemo, but the clownfish live in sea anemones and sea anemones provide protection. And in return, the clownfish, you know, provide food. So it's quite a cool relationship. Yeah, so sea anemones are called flowers of the ocean. Some of them can be quite beautiful, some bright. Essentially, they're quite simple animals in the organisation. They're basically one open-ended tube, for uh, lack of better description, which when you've got tentacles around it. So they only have one opening, um, the mouth into their stomach. But everything about them is quite primitive in terms of their anatomy. And are these are found like on the Great Barrier Reef where you, nearby where you are, or are these found elsewhere? So Telmetactus stevensoni is a tropical sea anemone. So they get quite large, 8 to 10 centimetres. So we actually have divers collect them from the Great Barrier Reef for us. Okay, great. And I know that many coral reefs are, you know, under a great deal of uh, environmental pressure right now, what with global warming and bleaching of corals. Is this organism, is your, is your sea anemone in danger? Is it, is it threatened or, or is it very abundant? I don't know in terms of abundance, but this sea anemone is quite hardy. I obviously did a number of experiments. As I previously mentioned, these guys have amazing regeneration capacity. So I removed chunks of tissue and it recovered within a matter of weeks. So they're quite hardy. They're not um, as predisposed to coral bleaching uh, or bleaching events like coral. Great. Glad to, I'm glad to hear that. You know, when I was reading your article, I was thinking about venomous animals and I was thinking about, you know, how they bite people like snakes. And um, what about these these organisms, these sea anemones? I, I, I understand that unlike snakes that deliver their venom through their fangs, um, the sea anemones venom is, is sort of a complex cocktail of toxins that are found throughout the sea, the sea anemones body. Is that right? Or, or where do you find toxins in different places of the, of the organism? Can you describe that? Yeah. So sea anemones and other cnidarians are quite cool. Um, they're one of the few venomous um, animals that actually don't have a central venom system. And what I mean by that is they don't have a gland connected by tubes to, like you said, a fang or a barb or whatever it else might be. They actually have these little stinging cells we call nematocysts distributed across their entire body. So they rely on the venom in these stinging cells for absolutely everything. They use it to catch their prey. So without it, they'd starve. They use it to deter predators because they're basically soft-bodied, slow-moving things. They can't escape predators other ways. So these stinging cells actually have like a little mini harpoon. Um, it's one of nature's uh, fastest um, processes. So when these stinging cells come in contact with prey or predators, they discharge. Those harpoon really quickly averts and acts like a hypodermic needle and allows the venom to be delivered into the prey or predators. Wow, that's super fast, it seems like. Yeah. Um, you also, I think the paper also mentioned that there were 
these toxins are stored in different parts of the body that correspond actually to the function of these toxins, their, their roles in catching prey or in defense or in digestion. So can you, I mean, is it like that certain compounds are formed in its stomach that helps digestion or prey or prey capture is in the, in the, in the, these uh, tentacles. Can you describe the, the sort of the connection between function and structure, something that's really fascinates biologists? Yeah. So for a long time, we have been studying toxins away from their functional biology, away from their ecological context, which has served a purpose, but we can get a lot of meaning by studying them like within the animal and what they do for that animal. So with sea anemones, they produce 84 toxins, but not every region has the same levels of those toxins. So something like the tentacles, which our animal primarily uses for prey capture, has a really rich abundance of things that would paralyze the prey and allow it then to be ingested. Whereas the things on, so the body, which is the exterior portion of the anemone, so when they're threatened, they retract their tentacles and their body is all that exposed. So there, what we expect to see is a higher abundance of pain-causing toxins so that whatever wants to eat the enemy is deterred by the pain and the animal is um, protected. Fascinating. Um, I was also really interested in, in thinking about some of the things you said about the convergence in the ways and places that these these animals create toxins. I mean, you said that you're, the sea anemones are obviously very different anatomically from terrestrial snakes, but the location of where one of these toxins that you found in its body is, is very similar to the venom of the black mamba snakes uh, that, that stimulates muscle contractions in its intestines. And I'm very curious about that because I know that black mamba snakes are native to, you know, to South Africa, not to Australia or to the Great Barrier Reef. So tell us about that sort of convergence that you discovered. Well, so cnidarians have been around for hundreds of millions of years. Um, they're regarded as the most ancient venomous lineage that still persists. So it makes sense that they're converging with some of these more younger terrestrial venomous lineages. What we see with this um, colipase that we find in the digestive tract of the anemone in the gastrodermis is that the abundance suggests it's involved in digestion. And the closest match we have to it um, is this black mamba toxin. They did a few studies on it, and what they found is that it gets injected into the prey of the black mamba and remains in the animal so that when it reaches the digestive tract of the um, snake, it can then stimulate the uh, contractions of the actual smooth muscle of the snake itself. Wow, wow, that is remarkable. You don't put together, you know, mamba snakes in Africa and, and sea anemones in Australia very often, but I think that's a really interesting connection. Yeah. Well, the thing is, because these snakes and spiders, they pose this um, significant risk to human health. They've been studied in a lot greater detail. So, of course, we're going to see these matches to sea anemone stuff because we just don't have the database available for cnidarians. Right. Right. Interesting. You and your colleagues use the approach of molecular biology to in to investigate this phenomenon. In fact, you published it in a journal called Molecular Biology. And I'm wondering if you could describe the methods or the, the general approach that you used um, in order to come up with the results that you did. And so could you describe those just very, very basically so that I, as a, I'm a field biologist, I'm a forest ecologist, and I don't, I'm not well acquainted with the tools of molecular biology, but could you just describe for our listeners sort of the general approach and how you went about carrying out this research? Yeah. Um, I'm myself uh, a molecular biologist, so I focus on DNA, RNA. So RNA tells us what um, things are being transcribed, what's being expressed. So we can look at which toxins are being made and which uh, 
parts of the body. So I dissected the animal and looked at RNA across different regions. Uh, but I worked alongside some people who did proteomics. So they actually took um, electrodes and ran it across the animal to milk venom, which is a bit of a strange concept, and we analysed that as well. Um, and then we kind of combined it with this uh, proteomic imaging approach. So it's proteomics meets histology. So you can actually see where peptides are expressed on a cross-section of the animal. And uh, it, it looks like, from you know, based on the figures and tables and, and images that were published with this article, that this really did require quite a coterie of scientists who have different specialties in terms of looking at different ways of examining this question from different aspects of molecular biology. Yeah, there's been a shift recently. Instead of just using transcriptomics, so looking at the RNA and DNA expression or looking at proteomics to actually match them up. And, you know, venom isn't stable. Toxin expression isn't stable. It's really dynamic things. So expected to change over time. But in our study, we actually found there was quite a bit of um, correlation between what we see at the protein level, what we see at the transcript level, which is really cool. And I think going forward, we really do need to appreciate that you need more than one approach to fully understand some of these phenomenons. Um, you also found that there were 84 different potential toxins, including one that had never been reported before. And so to me, that signals, wow, this really is a, you know, a novel transformative discovery. Um, and one of those toxins, I think you are sending to Hungary for analysis with the expectations or hope that this might actually become something useful in terms of uh, a therapeutic use. Um, could you talk about that that toxin and what your expectations are for that? Yeah, so uh, we uh, the colipase, like I said, is similar to the spike mamba toxin. We really have no idea what it does in sea anemones. Um, they don't have the same anatomy as a snake. They don't have small intestines. They don't have smooth muscle. So we're not exactly sure. But the fact that we do see the similarity and we do see where it's expressed tells us that it has some role in digestion. The actual applications to that are unclear at this stage, but with these toxin-driven discovery, the more you find out about things, we're actually creating potential targets for some um, drugs in certain conditions as well. Turning to a, a kind of a lighter side of your study, I read in one of the Twitter messages about this study um, is that you yourself experienced this venom firsthand. And I'm wondering if you could describe to our listeners what happened. Yeah, so... I was decked out in full PPE. Um, I was very aware that this animal could be quite dangerous to humans. Not all sea anemones pose a risk to humans. It's a lot to do with their size. So only the larger ones with the biggest stinging cells can actually penetrate human skin. So Telmetactus is a large reef-based anemone. And so we know that this particular animal also has these things called a contia. So these are like small white threads that it ejects out when it's threatened by a predator. And so... These obviously are going to have things that target mammalian predators, so they can uh, potentially could affect humans. And what happened was I had dissected the anemone. There was obviously some particles floating in the water. I was changing the water, long gloves, a drop ran down the glove and came on into contact with my bare skin. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, I thought perhaps I had cut with seawater initially, but the uh, pain increased. It was not pleasant. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. <laughs> Um, but I soldiered on. I'll keep that in mind, yes. Yeah, so I actually had to teach that day, but I noticed afterwards that the um, the wounds, the welts, took quite a while to heal, and it kind of coincided with what we see with divers' reports and coming into contact with some of these animals. Wow. Uh, you know, one of your co-authors, Peter Prentice, I guess he was the sort of the, the senior person on the study, um, said that 
you know, the, the toxins that are emitted in this long stinging thread that you that you described just now is used to ward off predators by delivering intense pain to its enemies, but that it also might be an antidote to some kinds of chronic pain. You know, and to me, as I was reading that, I kind of was scratching my head and thinking that seems sort of counterintuitive. Something that causes pain might actually help us to stop pain. So I was wondering if you could explain that line of reasoning, because I know that many researchers who have worked on things from poisonous snakes to cone, sna uh, cone shells and cone snails do see this connection between a neurotoxin or a blood toxin causing pain and yet also leading us towards a way to alleviate pain. What is that process? So the thing with sea anemones is they contain an abundance of neurotoxins. So unlike jellyfish, they've got a heap of toxins that target the nervous system. Um, and they've actually been used to study the nervous system and map out some of these channels and these targets. But once we find out what it, these venoms are targeting in the nervous system, we can obviously design something to then block it or have the opposite effect. The toxins themselves are amazing because of their specificity. So they bind to these targets with like really high without all the off-target effects of some of the other drugs we're looking at. I see. And in the past, what was the way that people kind of explored this? Did they just kind of try it out and, and say, well, what's the effect of this this neurotoxin on pain of in this place versus that place? I, I imagine it was more like sort of a, a needle in a haystack kind of looking rather than this targeted approach that, that your, your molecular biology approach provides. Yeah. So historically, most of the research has been on snakes and to a lesser extent spiders. So we they would milk the venom from the spiders and separate into fractions and then just test it against all these different targets and essentially try and look for the fraction that then had the activity you want and then they'd have to try and then isolate the individual component. Going back to the the, the paper itself and the work that led up to it, I, I understand that this was your dissertation work and has led to your PhD and I think it's you know, remarkable that you got this published in the prestigious journal of molecular biology and have been getting a tremendous amount of attention from the media. Did, did this surprise you or did you sort of know that you were onto something really remarkable and, and transformative in terms of the science that you were doing? I knew that this topic interests me and I know that sea anemones as a whole, talking to my friends and family, they aren't well understood and it's a bit of a novelty area. But I think this definitely has applications going forward. There's this movement in science going towards functional venomics, ecological venomics, and that's understanding what the venom does in terms of the ecological context of the animal. These animals produce venom for reasons, to ward off predators, to you know, paralyze prey, whatever it may be. There's these pressures that are you know, driving the evolution of venom, and not understanding and appreciating that can only limit our understanding in other areas. You know, as we're all aware, the conservation of habitats, of species, and of landscapes is of growing interest uh, now that the negative effects of human activities are being felt pretty much everywhere on our planet. And I'm wondering whether you and your colleagues have been thinking about how this work actually might contribute to habitat conservation. I think humans as a species are obviously very self-protecting. We're self-serving. We look after things that help us. And knowing that nature and these animals are, you know, a potential goldmine for drugs, for all these conditions that have been, you know, chronic. Um, we've got a CNNME-based drug in clinical trials for autoimmune diseases like psoriasis. These are debilitating conditions. And if there's going to be a cure that we can find in CNNMEs, 
then it's really in our best interest to protect these animals and all others, really. Right. Yeah. As a, you know, I'm a rainforest biologist and I think very often when I can, I mean, I can talk about biodiversity and its value or ecosystem function and the value of trees and maintaining that. But when I mention things like, oh, and you know, the Pacific yew tree has produced Taxol, which is one of the most effective anti-cancer compounds. That's when many people say, oh, well then I guess we better protect the Pacific yew tree. So I guess some of the work that you've been doing then in terms of identifying these toxins that can be used as medic- as medicine or used in therapeutic ways would really sort of garner the people or garner the attention that, that we so badly need right now in terms of protecting habitats like the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, absolutely. Look, once they're gone, they're gone. There's not much we can do, and it's only going to be to our detriment losing some of these beautiful resources. This is, you know, just such a fascinating and important area of inquiry because it really connects the natural world through your lab work uh, to dissemination of this to other scientists. And I'm, I'm wondering, what might be your advice for young people, young scientists, to do work that's similar to the work that you do? What would you advise them in terms of preparing themselves to, to move into this field? Science is hard. There's lots of failures and you have to go back to the drawing board. But the most important thing is absolutely surrounding yourself with, you know, the important people, the people who are going to support you. I was so lucky with my PhD in terms of my supervisors and my co-authors that these incredibly talented and passionate people, they were getting so excited about some of our discoveries and that's just contagious. And it just really motivates you to keep working through like the hard times. Nice. That's lovely. I'm sure that your collaborators feel similarly about you. And that brings me to another question with, you know, with such a splash for your dissertation work, I'm wondering what lies ahead for this particular piece of research. Are you going to be continuing to pursue this line of research with the same species? Uh, Might you be interested in in pursuing the development of these of these medications or or uh, or medical um compounds or or what is it that that you see ahead for yourself? So for myself, I do have a couple of papers still in the works I've got to finish off. One of them does include this Tomatactus stevensoni. But in terms of drug discovery, like I said, a lot of our work, we've all got different specialties, different techniques. So I've kind of done my part in terms of Tomatactus. So we've now handed off some of the peptides to our collaborators who are going to investigate them, do some structure, do some functional analysis and see which ones we're actually going to be wanting to pursue and turn into drugs. That makes perfect sense. I know that the the pathway or the the journey from going from a natural compound found in a fish or a sea anemone or a tree or tree bark, it, there's a very long journey to get it to the stage at which it become an, it becomes an effective drug that's actually validated and approved. So I can I can imagine that you know if your interests are in the the basic research the the lab bench research in terms of finding and discovering these new compounds that it might make sense then for other people who are more interested in the development of drugs to to take what you've done and move it further yeah this process is very very lengthy it takes 20 plus years to get something from being discovered to turn into a drug so the only um the well-known cnme drug dalazotide um that's clinical trials at the moment but it wasn't just the natural toxin that was being trialed. They actually do some modifications and stuff like that. And so you require some people with some really specialist um, skill sets to do that. Good. Great. I'm glad that you have those collaborators. Um, wondering, uh, one of the things that, that we discussed just before our, we started our interview was your 
your interest in public engagement, your interest in dissemination of the work that you as a scientist do. And I'm wondering whether you carry out some of your own public engagement work, whether you write articles for the public or what your connection is, your direct connection is with society. Um, so my supervisor gave this article to our media team who've kindly disseminated it and that's, I'm assuming, how you guys got it. It was made available. Yeah, public engagement is so important. It's not something that I've had time for until now. Um, I was knee-deep in a PhD, but I really, really enjoy teaching undergrads and I think them learning about the research and being aware of it is obviously inspiring the next generation, but just making it all that more worthwhile too. Fantastic. I, I agree with you that the dissemination part is really part of the scientific process and, and we need scientists to pay attention to that. So I, I'm glad that you, you share those feelings. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Obviously, I've been incredibly lucky to work with these animals. They're amazing and very interesting. But there's a lot of other research being done by people in this um, landscape of, you know, ecological phenomics. And some of the new technology coming to light is only going to further this field. Ten years ago, I couldn't have done this research. There just wasn't the tools available. So I think it's really important, obviously, this collaboration just moving forward, applying these different techniques and just thinking a little bit outside the box to answer some of these questions. Fantastic. Lauren, thank you so much um, for your your research, first of all, and also the, your generosity of your time in sharing with us uh, what, what you and your colleagues have done. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.